0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast, and we have huge news to start this episode. The COVID emergency is officially over. Woo! Mm-hmm. Cheers to that, guys. <laughs> Cheers to the longest 15 days of any of Hard our lives. Hard to believe it
1: was only 15 days. Yeah. Zesty. They're cheering outside, and, too. And, you know, <laughs> if, if the government hadn't told us it was over, you know,
0: I mean, what would we do? I mean, I'd still be, mean, be driving around with gloves and a mask on by myself. I was in wearing my car. three
1: masks. Yeah, on top of each other. That's because you're a patriot. In bed.
0: (laughs) With the the face shield? On your face or (laughs) elsewhere? (laughs)
1: I'll leave that to your imagination. It's in that. I don't want to know. know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lot of interesting things to talk about today, including... Apart from the COVID emergency being over, what the hell is the noise going on? (laughs) Literally, we start recording and someone is running a jackhammer next door.
2: They're incredibly excited about the COVID. It's fantastic. (laughs) There
0: is actually an incredible artisan charcuterie place going in next door and he's building a commercial kitchen. So that's what the noise is. So if you hear it, just uh, think about delicious aged meats. Uh, We're going to talk about a bunch of things today. Uh, We've got leaked documents uh, from the US government. Suggesting that the US has had boots on the ground in Ukraine for months, apparently, contrary to what we've been told by the Biden administration. We're also going to talk about Budweiser's amazing ad campaign that has managed to miraculously lose the company $6 billion in market cap in just over a week. We'll chat about some new polling data that suggests that 62% of Democrats want someone to run against Joe Biden if he runs in 2024. And we're going to talk about Montana Republicans desperate attempt to remove third parties from uh, from the ballot in coming elections, as well as manipulate uh, the upcoming Senate race to make it easier to unseat Senator John Tester. Why don't we start there, David, because you are our our political operative on the inside. What's what do you know about these bills in particular and and what's going on there?
3: I mean, obviously, I'm not tracking those bills closely because I'm not it's not a bill I'm engaged in. But um, obviously, it comes down to John Tester has consistently beaten the Republican opponent uh, since he first came into 2020, 2010. Sorry. And he's a very difficult candidate. He's very slippery. He's got uh, he's really great at playing his biography a very difficult biography for most Republicans to overcome. He also has key Senate seats and committees, uh, such as the Veterans Foreign Affairs Committee. And he's got he's a very difficult candidate to defeat. So the Republicans are pulling out all the stops, apparently, including some very power politics stops uh, to try to reduce the likelihood, I think wrongly, to uh, keep third-party candidates from throwing the election.
0: Yeah, it seems like they're playing very dirty with these two bills. And to be clear, it is two different bills. One is going to affect directly the Senate... Uh, race that's coming up just for one cycle too and then go away yeah (laughs) Yeah. the bill is designed to sunset after this one election it's like could you make it more obvious that you're just trying to manipulate this one election i don't think so Uh, and then the other one specifically would not go away and that one is designed to make it such that a third party candidate has to get vote totals equal to or greater than five percent of the registered voters in the state in order to maintain ballot access which to you know for full disclosure, I mean we we know libertarians nationally, let alone in Montana, typically get 1 to 2% of vote totals. So 5% is in most cases over double or more of the vote totals that libertarian candidates tend to get as well as other third parties. So this would effectively make it such that third party candidates have to petition to get on the ballot every election cycle, which is in, prohibitively expensive, tons of work, tons of time and energy. It would effectively make third party candidates irrelevant, right?
1: Yeah. What do you think about this stuff, Henry? I mean, I, I haven't been following it too closely. I, I I think your everything you said is is accurate, though. I, you know the 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 bill that would prohibit you know third party candidates indefinitely from from ballot access. It's it's very disheartening to me. You know all the all the work that we have done recently. Um, you know, getting involved with the Libertarian Party. Um, you know, it kind of would. Would make that all for not? Um, so I, I really, you know, I hope I hope that it fails. And if you're a listener or viewer in Montana, you still have time to uh, to call call your representatives, let them know that you're against this. Um, you know, it's a it's a threat to our democracy, as as some would say. <laughs> well, so, two two, two notes on is. that,
3: too. I mean, one, uh, libertarians don't vote Republican when
1: there isn't a Republican in
3: the, in the race. That's not necessarily true. Oh, it, it, this is one of the things that frustrates me. The evidence for
0: that is extremely, extremely weak. Wait, can we clarify that really quick? You, you said you're saying libertarians don't, don't necessarily, necessarily vote for necessarily Republican
3: if there isn't a libertarian on the ballot. Gotcha. That's not true. That's an assumption that Republicans make because they're, they don't like the fact that sometimes the Libertarian is the margin in the race. Now, a good example of that, 2012, uh, you had... And then there's additional you know, factors in there, too. In 2012, uh, Reberg versus Tester, the Libertarian carried probably 4%, something like that, 5%. But it was more than the margin that Tester beat against uh, um, Reberg. Right, Reberg so lost for lots of reasons. It was not the Libertarian, probably. That said, there was definitely spending to buy an anonymous outside group... Uh, that didn't do proper campaign disclosures. Uh, that to boost that Libertarians name ID, uh, and thus potentially throwing the race the other direction. So that uh, Republicans have been salty about that ever since. Gotcha. That said, a lot. There's very. There's no the evidence for that being that if that guy wasn't there, that 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 Rieberg would one of one is so weak because it just it's resting on the assumption that every time Libertarians face a Republican versus Democrat, they're going to go vote for the Republican. That's just false. Most of them won't vote at all. Or uh, they'll uh, about about 40 to 60 percent, just depending on the race, will vote for the Democrat. So this could result in better Democrat turnout. And in fact, the Libertarian Party chairman has suggested that that's very, very much likely their outcome that they that he would be advocating for uh, for members of the Libertarian Party to in that race to vote
0: D in order to punish the Republicans for this use of their political power totally i mean i have said as much although i'm not sure i could ever bring myself to vote for uh most democrats or or most republicans frankly and i think that's where the flawed logic is right it's like libertarians if not given their candidate are going to default to one or the other in how how many cases do we just elect not to vote Mm -hmm. who knows you know it's hard to say uh according to the cernovich tweet we're going to get into (laughs) later you know he would assume that uh we'd side with the communists so (laughs) you (laughs) know it's kind of like you're throwing a party (laughs) right You're
3: throwing a party, and you're like, you have there's two there's another party going on, and then a really small party, and you're like, well, if I just bomb the house of the other party, the small party, everyone will come to my party, and that's just not true. Like, if you want someone to come to your party, make it a place that they want to join, right? Uh, I I think, and and the Libertarian Party has been pretty clear about this. If they if they want Libertarian support in this area, all they have to do is be better on monetary policy, be better on foreign policy, and focus on those issues. Yeah, just do two things: be true to the old Republican ethos on those issues and you don't have to worry about a libertarian candidate in your race now a far better answer or that to actually give the libertarian libertarians power in that space to say hey you're not you're not a, you're not one of us and that's what happened in rosendale's race last cycle uh he had a, liber- a, a libertarian candidate run against him rosendale's very good on those two issues and the libertarian party endorsed him and then said hey you want to you, you go good job rosendale mm-hmm. this guy some banker uh, uh, I think, what was his name? His last name was Rankin is not one of us and we don't endorse him. And we're going to make sure all libertarians know that. Right. And mm-hmm. Rosendale did really great. Right. So it, it's not a close district unlike the statewide election, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but the uh, if you gave, so right now in Montana, we have, it's called open primaries where anyone can vote on the an election and anyone can associate with that party. We don't give free association rights to political parties. So political parties who have someone who files the, with the government, they can't get them off the ballot, even though that person doesn't represent their ideology. Wow. Yeah. So if you want to solve the problem in a way that would actually complement what both Republicans want, which is to get, you know, what do they call them? What's the word? Rhinos? Yeah. Out of, you know, the, the thing that's, that, that they often feel like is uh, watering down the Republican message. And then also give libertarians a, an excuse to be able to, to exist and then to have their function as a third party, which is to say, here's what a, a more pure ideological
0: candidate would look like. Yeah. Totally. Um, Rhino, for those that aren't aware, is Republican in name only. Um, Yeah, and if if you're interested in this issue, uh, I just want to make sure I mention this. We're going to put in the show notes a place to go that you can submit written testimony. uh, And uh, as well, you know, the contact information for the members of the committee that are hearing this bill, these bills in the Montana legislature, so that you are able to reach out to them and voice your opposition. Uh, Tell them respectfully to vote no on these bills because obviously the last thing anybody wants and the last thing anybody should want, regardless of your party affiliation is a limitation on election freedom, a limitation on ballot access. That is not indicative of a free state. That is not the kind of behavior we want to encourage. We, We need to push back against this and we need to do it right now because these bills are moving through the legislature. They've already passed the Senate. They're headed for the house. So, Please, if you are in any way moved by this issue, reach out to them uh, as soon as possible. What do we got here, Kyle? Oh, well, I
2: was I was just uh, queuing up the uh, Cernovich
0: tweet. So yeah, that maybe you it's guys a good
1: good he, enough time to, to yeah, talk about. Let's Cernovich.
0: do it. So, uh, so Cernovich, uh, who is a popular conservative uh hall, hall of tweeter.
1: I mean, uh, you know, he's a journalist. He's an online personality. He's he's a he's a lawyer shit poster um, by training. Totally. Uh, he. Uh, <laughs> He he was a, he was a big voice in the 2016, uh, MAGA movement. Um, he was, uh, instrumental in, um, bringing down Jeffrey Epstein as well. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's an interesting guy. He, he says a lot of interesting things. Um, and he's, uh, He's he's voicing a sentiment that I've heard from, from many who would who would associate themselves on the right, which I think Cernovich would. So for those who are just listening, we've got this tweet pulled up here. It says, Given the
0: choice, libertarians will always side with the communists. They are fundamentally a left-wing movement. Where does this come from?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think where this comes from is a reaction to the uh the 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 people who have you know, been the forefront of libertarianism for a long time, you know, the decades, the people who have been running the LP national, the, the people who are in charge of the Cato Institute, the so-called beltway libertarians who, you know, for example, um, would had supported things like mask mandates and, and vaccines during, during COVID, um, you know, and and it's a very similar sentiment to what the Montana Republican Party is is probably going for with these bills that we were just talking about. That you know, libertarians are are uh, uh, the ones that spoil elections for Republicans. Um, so I don't know if. Um, but I'm so
0: I'm so confused if if the Republicans in this state think that libertarians spoil the elections because if if there wasn't a libertarian party, they'd vote Republican. How is that in any way analogous or you know, associated with this idea that Cernovich is putting forward that libertarians if given the choice would side with communists. That seems to be the opposite. I, I think you guys might be
2: focusing too much on the election side. I think he's uh, alluding more to the cultural side of libertarianism. I think that there's a lot of uh, overlap, or he's suggesting that there's a lot of overlap between like, the progressives and libertarians on what their actual cultural values are. It's not necessarily like, are they spoiling Republican elections and
0: whatnot. So what, in your opinion, are those cultural values overlaps?
2: Um... I think that I think that Cernovich is probably concerned. I I, I don't know all of Cernovich's works. Sure. So I don't I, mean again, I don't like, mean to make you speak. You don't have
3: for him. the guerrilla mindset. Mm-hmm. I've never read the guerrilla <laughs> mindset. What's wrong with you? But
2: I have followed Cernovich for several years, like you mentioned with uh, the FOIA requests on the Epstein stuff. Like this is you know a decade ago he was working on that type of stuff. Um, I, I think that there's a certain concern that he has. Like uh, there's a, a bit of a nihilism that sets in with certain libertarian wings that exist kind of more on like a meta, a metaphysical critique of the world rather than just like a political critique where there's certain like a lot of the pushing towards transgenderism and uh, different cultural sets of values that the progressives are, are very much uh, inclined to push he thinks that a lot of libertarians uh, align themselves they might just have a different means of doing it but so, they, they'll, so. they'll turn a blind eye to certain things because it's like oh we're kind of on the same page with that like I think that there's a certain element of
0: I see. So, so perhaps by way of the well, live and let live perspective that a lot of libertarians tend to profess, that his view might be that potentially that would lend itself to promoting some of these progressive ideologies by way of sort of abdicating responsibility over them. Is that yeah, yeah, something is that, like that, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well,
2: he, he's he's very much like he's a very uh, Nietzschean individual, I would say, of of personal responsibility and things like that. And he, I think he is suggesting that there is kind of this abdica- abdication. I can't say that word. You used it. <laughs> so, it's
0: low cap word of the day: abdication
2: <laughs> of responsibility that does exist and settles in with certain libertarian wings.
0: Interesting. I think. Interesting. Yeah. Any thoughts on this, Mister Philosopher?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure. I agree. I think conservatives are the ones who are consistently doing the progressivism yesterday. Li- yesterday, please elaborate. Well, conservatives are the ones who are saying we can't change Medicaid Part D. That passed in 2001. That's sacred. It's been on the books for (laughs) decades. Social security is completely bankrupt and is going to ruin the country, but we can't change that. After all, people paid into it. I mean, what name, any issue contemporary issue that isn't just mostly conservatives saying pretty much the talking points of the left from 50 years ago. I I, I don't know what he's talking about. Like, or so to me, you know, so you can the moment. you can point a libertarian like you're saying. You can point to a libertarian who went off the who went off the rails and said something I disagree with, and say that's what that's what he's talking about. I'm saying this this tweak doesn't make any sense. What communists is he talking about? Actual communists or are you talking about liberal democrats or progressives. Yeah. Those are completely different philosophies. And if you're gonna play in the realm of well, everything's a broad, ill-defined category, and I'm an, and I can just engage in this kind of rhetoric, it's it's just completely dumb. It's, it's I. This one frustrates me because it it doesn't it doesn't actually give it doesn't create any content. It is just like just starting a flame war to make some stupid point that is completely out of the blue. Yes, Cato Institute, a couple of the people from there said some stuff about COVID during the middle of COVID that I completely disagree with about how vaccine passports could be legit. That said, if there was a private, you know, industry that came along and said, Hey, we will authenticate that you've had your vaccine so you can have a vaccine passport and it's all private and it's all done in a free society with no government that exists at all or a minimal watch state. Would I create a law to stop a private company from doing that? No. Does that make me a communist? I'm afraid not. I don't. I think if that's information that people want, people should be able to request it and start a business that does that.
0: That's that's totally fair. Right? Uh, so, I, and I, I, but I think you're right. I think you're totally right. And from what from some things that I've seen from Cernovich, and I can't say I follow him avidly on Twitter, but I, uh, you know, I have seen him do some of these things where it's like this is really just a pithy Twitter post that is, is intended to stir up shit yeah. and try to get people a little fired up and he's he's gone after libertarians before in the past and I think it's really just a part of honestly trying to it's polarizing, whether it's his intention or not, it's trying to push people right or push people left. And push people out of well, this. Well I think there is mindset. there is
1: a genuine uh in, in the conservative movement there are there are people who are they see the libertarians maybe as a threat or or you know maybe as uh you know they just disagree with like maybe what Kyle was alluding to the the sort of look and let live philosophy uh, that that can be I, I think there are, there are different sort of flavors of libertarians and there are some libertarians who are sort of more of the hedonistic mindset and they're attracted to libertarianism because they want to, you know, they want to legalize prostitution and legalize drugs and, and, you know, have a good time. Well, you know, and, and, and also
2: celebrate There's also yeah. like a celebratory factor that, that exists in certain, uh, ethoses of the libertarian movement at large. And I think that's where some of the critique lies.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying, Kyle. You're saying it's a, it's a cultural critique, but I'm once again, I'm saying like, so what's he, what is he advocating for? What is exactly his point of view on this? Does he want to ban people from being able to gay marriage? Is that what he wants?
2: I don't think he's. Or, or, or I, I don't is, think he's
3: suggesting that well, at all. Well, well, then what's he for? I don't. I don't. I don't get any of this. I'm, I, think what I'm he, I think he's is,
2: making a, a just a small little critique and a jab in like a very small <laughs> a, in a small tweet. Exactly. Like, I think that's exactly. All it is.
3: Exactly my point. So like you could you could say that well well some of these libertarians are actually their real motivation is that they uh, not only do they uh, not think that sex work should be criminalized but they also want to participate in it. So what? It doesn't pick my pocket or 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 do anything to me. Go go do your thing. I, I don't I don't I I don't like this whole. That isn't celebrating prostitution. That is a, a world of tolerance where we don't make this crazy distinction that just because I can therefore have personal opinions that therefore that means that I shouldn't be able to be able to say here's what the world should be right. I mean like I'm I'm trying to say that it doesn't imply that therefore I support people entering that as a profession, right or whatever transgender issue is currently existing, right? I mean, it, it, you can make the case that, you know, some of these libertarians are going way off the boat. I think it was uh, Louisiana yeah. is basically making the case that, you know, libertarianism implies that you should be able to have drag queens at public schools. I'm like, no, that's not, yeah, that's yeah. not, well, that's not what it means. And okay, if that, he's reacting to that, then I think he's actually has content, but
0: otherwise he's just stern shit. To to play devil's advocate or just open this subject up a little bit. What is the libertarian argument for if I don't feel that I want those things in my community, how do do I, within a libertarian framework, move to create the moral, the cultural environment that I want in my world without some degree of impressing my values on the people around me, or at least, you know, cultivating those values collectively and then bringing those about. What is the mechanism that does that?
3: What bothers me is so much of the Republicans here are just repeating progressive talking points from the turn of the 18th century, right? They're saying, well, we need to ban prostitution because we, because otherwise prostitution happens. But before that time, here's, I'm getting to your solution here. Before that time, prostitution was mostly legal, if not a very large black market. And most of the outlets to it were private industry trying to solve those problems, private charities, trying to say, hey, alcoholism is a problem. Here's Here are programs that we have to try to get people to be able to be good fathers and to be able to provide for the families. And it was mostly male phenomenon at the time. At least that's how it was diagnosed socially. Uh, and then, uh, for prostitution, same thing. There was a whole whole, whole lot of private organizations that started in order to try to de-emphasize that say, hey, no, you should probably find sexual satisfaction in your marriage and not in this industry because that's bad for your kids and it's bad for your life and it's all these things. And they make a persuasive moral argument that actually works rather than actually just throwing people in jail or criminalizing this thing and leading it to gangsterism in, in, in a black market. So I, I don't and it's the same thing with the, with the obviously, with the, uh, with the transgender issue. People have a, a right <laughs> if they want to host a transgender drag show in their private environment. Of course. Some Republicans, some conservatives would ban that. Right. right. So, 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 like, so I'm trying to say, okay, so we're just talking about kids. Well, then it gets a little bit more complicated, especially right. when you talk about public schools and kids. So once you get to there, it's like, okay, we can, we can, we can get into a dialogue about that. But that's not that's not what the Libertarian Party of Louisiana said. They were just like, no, all of this must be okay, and I think there's a criticism from Libertarian right on that for sure. But I I don't see how that meshes at all with uh, Cernovich's tweet.
0: No, and I, I, more. I, I want to come back to this question though because I don't think that I necessarily got the answer I so I'm looking for. That's Sorry. okay. I I appreciate what your your response there. We we agree that government bans are not the way to handle these issues. They they don't solve the problem point blank. So what is the voluntary private solution to I don't want my community to behave in this way. Perhaps my view is that, you know, uh, a kindergarten drag show is not the, the, the moral standard that I want my community to live by. Mm -hmm. How do I go about creating and enacting that community without the force of government? Don't have public
3: schools have, you know, and if you want to have public education, fund public education. So if you want to say, so I'm, okay, so I'm beginning so I'm to think, I'm going
0: to, I'm going to pull you back from that yeah, again, because yeah. we live in a world where there's public education. Well, so, so how do we, within the world we live in and not a libertarian utopia where there's not public education, but a variety, a market of private education, how yeah. do we, how do we make, make one more step towards that?
3: Well, so, so yeah, so you can, as soon as you say public education exists and we're going to take that as a given, now it's a political battle about what happens on those things. So whoever gets 51%. Gets to win and define define that. So in Oregon, they're going to say transgenders in every library, you know, forever. And in Montana, they're going to say, and there's a bill that's going to ban that practice in Montana. Uh, in fact, ban underage attendance to any drag show where there's nudity. Is that going to pass? Probably. I would guess. I don't know. I'm not tracking the books. But I mean, I think there's that that happens. That dynamic is set because of the public system that we're in. We don't have to make that choice. We can make the choice to fund edu- students rather than systems. We have a choice to fund everybody. So, so, for example, and then that, then that encourages pluralism. Now, this doesn't answer your question, right? Because someone still might choose to create a school in your neighborhood, in your community, that doesn't comport with your values. Right. And the question is, is do you have the right to use force? And that is always the libertarian question. Do you have the right to use force to stop someone from doing something on their own property with their own kids? And when? When does it become child abuse? Yeah and 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 that's a that's a very hazy question right because for the right when is it okay to pray away the disease right the, yeah. not too not too long ago just a, just a couple years ago there was a story of a family who was who didn't believe in doctors or medicine because they were religious and do they have the religious liberty allow that could die of a preventable disease because they don't believe in medicine good question the left would say that is child abuse and i might agree with them yeah I mean, i'm not sure yeah right Similarly, if you, if you raise your kid um, in a gender that's not what they present and the kid doesn't actually want to and, you know, a, and a parent is obsessed with this thing, this quasi-religious cultural thing that we're in with trans- transgenderism, is that child abuse and when? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I trust the state to make that decision either. because oh, right then the not. state's making that decision based upon whoever's in power. Right. And their particular values. So I'm not sure there's a single, singular objective value here. Right. So uh, if, if we're going to allow uh, people to express their values, they're going to choose things that we might not preference sometimes. That is tolerance and it's a virtue. And I don't see and – if, and if what Sermesh is talking about is that libertarians sometimes allow for cultural leftist values to exist, and that's the why they're, they're going to side with the communists, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm afraid he, he's just not getting it yeah. because he doesn't understand what freedom is.
0: I, totally. I,
2: I don't think it's that – I don't think his critique is that they allow – I think it's that there's a large swath that actively promote. Um, Jeff Deist, had a who just recently left the Mises Institute. Uh, he was the former chairman of the Mises Institute, chairman, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he he had a quote that always stuck with me that there's a. He always said that there's a large swath of libertarians that that seek progressive ends through libertarian means. And they will do everything to kind of turn a blind eye to the kind of neoliberal homogenization of cultures that the progressives uh, kind of purport and have been purporting for the last hundred years. Um, I think that Cernovich, if if I gauge and I understand Cernovich appropriately, I think he's kind of echoing a similar sentiment. It's not to and it's not this isn't a critique of all libertarians necessarily, at least yeah. at, at least on the Jeff Dice side of it yeah. is. But it is kind of, that's kind of where he's aiming at. And it's not necessarily a political critique, it's a cultural
3: critique. Yeah, but, but like but, you,
2: everything you're aiming at is the, is the political side. Well, once like, again, what should the state if,
3: if, if people have actual values that differ from him and they're freely chosen, what's his problem?
2: Well, and, and we're dissecting a, t- a, a small tweet. Yeah, on, yeah right. On, but that's that's and, I'm, I'm and, like and generally what we think he might be. Right, saying, right. right, right.
3: But that's my that's my response to that. Right, is yeah. If, if people
0: freely choose those values and you disagree with them, what are you going to do about it? Totally. Well, I think this is actually an interesting pivot because what people have the free choice to do is not buy Budweiser beer <laughs> if they don't like that Dylan Mulvaney is on a can or is an influencer. Right. Good transition. It's stupid. Thank you. Uh, you. You you teed it up for it. For sure. It's stupid, I think. I mean, well, whatever. I I, I think Bud Light's a trash beer anyway. So you know, ask my my opinion of that. That's what I'll tell you. But I mean, I think this is a perfect example of a free market solution to disagreeing culturally with something that's happening. Right, voting with your dollars
1: in this case. I mean, Henri, do you have any thoughts on the situation? Like, I, yeah, I got I got several thoughts on the situation. So. I'm not going to say it's it's meaningless what's happening with the the stock price, but I believe it's like a five percent dip so far. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of a a blip on the radar. If 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 the cultural right, you know, the the people who are, are pushing back against the the radical subjectivism that's coming out of this sort of woke cult. You know, if they can continue to to, to apply pressure in the situation, they might be able to to gain a victory. But so far, you know, I, I wouldn't be patting anybody on the back. You know, I, I would actually take more of the stance that, you know, Budweiser paid Dylan Mulvaney $10,000 and everybody's been talking about Budweiser nonstop for two weeks. And fast forward two years from now, people will have largely forgotten about this. And Budweiser is not going anywhere. They're probably still going to be the king of beers. And I I think Bud Light is is trash as well. I prefer these fine alcoholic Zesty products. (laughs) Cue the sponsor on. (laughs) This episode
0: is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, Keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com.
3: Can I jump in there? (laughs) Sure, yeah. So uh, there's a great book everyone should read called Trust Me, I'm Lying. Um, what's, what was the author's name? Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday. Uh, yes. um, mm. And he went on to become a Stoic philosopher. But uh, <laughs> before that, he was the ad guy for American Apparel and all these companies. Uh, and that's Tucker is what, Max. Tucker Max. Yeah, yeah. One, of the, one of the things that the whole lesson in that book is stop getting triggered by corporations doing things you don't like so that you then draw attention to them and increase their profits. Right. So what they do is they do something provocative. People come out and say, I hate that. And then it increases its salience in the in the public eye. Salience is just like can people recognize the the word or the phenomena, and then they improve. May, in this case, maybe it backfired, and didn't know. but this is I what I suspect is this was a trust me I'm lying
0: technique, hmm. or an attempt to increase an ESG score.
1: Both. I or think both. yeah. I think uh, certainly
0: the latter. Um, it's hard to say what the what the underlying strategy was, but there was a video that came out prior to this where the VP. A VP of marketing or something like that was talking about how they needed to reform this fratty, you know, out of touch brand and and focus on inclusivity, right? So it seems like there definitely was an element of cultural wokeness being deliberately Mm -hmm. inculcated into this into this brand. I mean, to me, I don't I don't know. I mean, it remains to be seen. Time will tell what diehard Bud Light drinkers will do with their behavior over time if they think my favorite beer brand has gone woke and that completely clashes with my values and my views. Maybe they will find something different. What they need to do though, is not just go fall into the arms of another brand that clashes with their values, which most of the corporations at this level do, right? I mean, they're all vying for these ESG scores, the ones that are concerned about them that want to get these investment dollars. So that's not going to change on the whole. That's not going to change the macro picture of what's going on culturally in the corporate space. They need to focus on finding brands that really do align with their values, which is a much more harder thing to do. But there are, you know, marketplaces and things out there that are starting to publicize conservative brands or, you know, progressive brands or libertarian brands. And I think that's maybe a step further than most people are going to be willing to go.
1: Yeah. And I I would, you know, I I say it's not totally meaningless because I do think there are a large number of people who are, you know, kind of mindlessly drinking Bud Light and then they see something like this and, and. You know, I, I don't want to use the phrase red pilling, but it's like an eye-opening moment that might open them up to to other ideas and and kind of what else is going on in the world around them. So, I mean, I, I do think there are there's a there's a small percentage of people who will forever have been kind of activated by this in a good way. But you know, like I said, fast forward in a few years, most of society will have forgotten about this. Hopefully by then Dylan Mulvaney is a is a detransitioning activist and uh, you know Budweiser has has just continued to to dominate the beer space which you know they have for many years. Yeah,
0: well, there's some interesting thoughts about Dylan Mulvaney as a as a character. Uh, you know, the assertion has been raised recently that he is a, how did you put it, Kyle, a product of the algorithm, right? He's you know, been chasing this fame that this increasingly popular. Um, trans movement has been affording him through clicks and likes and things of that nature. I mean, is, is this, are there, are are we going to see more of this, you know, is, is he driving culture or is culture driving
1: him? I think more the latter. I think so. Yeah, I I would, I would agree with, with that take that, you know, he, he was trying to get notoriety and and found a way to do it, but it was reinforced and, and informed by, by the algorithm. You know, it was, it was this, Uh, this was the avenue that got him the most likes and clicks and you know, and it's led, led to this point. So, so how much further can he go is the question. What's the, what's the end of the road?
0: I mean, does the popularity fall off at a certain point, you know, or, 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 I mean, or does he just keep finding his way to the most popular thing?
2: He's probably a creature of the moment, right? Like, will last for as long as the fame lasts and as long as everybody's promoting him and then we'll fall by the wayside until the next person comes
1: along. Yeah. I mean, I, I was kind of joking where, you know, saying that he'll, he'll one day become a detransitioner activist. Like, but I think that that actually could be where the algorithm leads him. Eventually, you know, his, his transition will have been completed and his fame will dip and then he'll have to find a new grift mm. and, you know, market to a new audience. That's very interesting.
0: That's very interesting. I, um, well, I just, I find it, I find it uncanny how he can paint such a, a really cliche caricature of of the behaviors of women and the thoughts of women. And I don't know any women that act like that. And that so many women like seem to support him or those views, or at least not find them incredibly offensive. I don't, I mean, I think he's
1: insulting to women and to, to authentic trans people. So I
3: think I think that's so. Your take is that it's not an authentic identity.
1: In his case, that would I, I suppose that would be like where I put my money. But I don't know him personally. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's, he that's is. what I was
3: strugg- That's what I was thinking about while you were talking. I was thinking I don't know whether or not this is real for that person or not. It's that's one of the challenging things about identity. People yeah. say this is who I am, and and like you either take that at face value or don't. Right? It's it's a difficult and definitely something we're struggling with as a culture. Right? Where where are you what you are because of who you are about your background and your race and your biology and your sex and all these things and then what are you that you can decide right? and i think everyone's always deciding that right you pick up a new hobby this is now a thing i'm about right i'm i'm going to tell you about jujitsu all of a sudden or you know someone's doing crossfit or someone's now a vegan or whatever uh, we have those, those are the ones you hear jokes about, all yeah, right. <laughs> right. Most people just say, I like video games now. No one didn't say anything to anybody. Well, yeah. th-
2: there, there is an interesting thing about chasing fads, right. Of, uh, you know, this might get us demonetized, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I saw a chart a day or two ago. I was just trying to find it, but I, I'm going to have to dig first. through. Yeah, that's true. We're not, <laughs> we're not even monetized. Yeah. Um, but I saw a chart of saying that, uh, it was like 19.8% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ, et cetera, right. right? Which I think there is an element of a lot of fad chasing that exists here. It is it is a lot of social pressures and algorithm chasing on the TikTok trends and things like that.
3: Right. right. So what's interesting about that, that argument is actually made on both sides. Um, I kind of see myself as a neutral in this, in this area, right? Oh, yeah, but impossible. The... the, the the left makes the same argument. They say for years we've had heteronormativity heteronormativity reinforcing values and telling everybody they have to be straight and what they present to the world gender-wise. And what and because of the new acceptance of trans, people are now being their authentic selves. And that's why we're seeing this rise is because we have a change in cultural values that's more open and tolerant, therefore more people are expressing themselves the way that they would. That is really, truly authentic. Yeah. I mean, I think, it's impossible to get the evidence that suggests that, right? Because we don't know people's minds. Well, we can't know true. inside their, what, they're, what they're
0: actually thinking. And it's particularly difficult in the context of social media because, as we already know, people have a, a persona that they put forward to the public on social media. You know, the, the highlight reel of their life, essentially. And then they have what goes on behind the scenes. And we don't know if the camera turns off and Dylan Mulvaney turns into a completely different person or not. So it's, it's rather impossible to tell. Yeah. This is interesting because we also have a rise in millennials identifying as lgbt. I mean, there is this idea that that some component of this, obviously there are genuinely gender dysphoric individuals in the world. It 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 is from what I understand a very small percentage, but there is this idea that some component of this is a social contagion. Yeah.
3: Well, I, I, th- I th- well, yeah. I mean, because culture does I mean, no ad- affect people's identities. I don't think anyone well, says I mean, that's uh, not true. Is the question is to what degree mm-hmm. do you, when someone says this is who I am, do you believe that person? Sure, right. And I mean, but it, also the individual level is one thing. On a macro level, you're like, wow, this is an interesting phenomenon, right? Because people's preferences change over time too. Culture has a huge impact on individual
1: preferences. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say, you know, think about the like the sort of pressure cooker that young people who are already extremely impressionable are, are put into. Where all around them, they're fed this this idea that the world is just oppressors and people who are oppressed, and this is a way that you can you can join an oppressed group, which is is in a way like a, a badge of honor. It, it makes you go from being uh, an oppressor to an oppressed, or and and now you're on the good team, mm. and it's you know peer pressure and and the the, the influence of of you know. The propaganda that comes through entertainment and, and media, it's, it's real. And, and we don't know how this is going to play out right. a so generation it, from now.
3: Once again, the, the leftists would say that's always existed. It's just always existed in the cis world, in the, in the straight world. And so that these people are actually rejecting against that and now – Doing the same.
2: But I'll also add there's, a, there's the famous uh, Vladimir Lenin quote that's uh, just give me one generation of your children and I'll transform the world, right? Like, if you start to indoctrinate the kids young in some sort of ideology of whatever that ideology is, mm-hmm. um, that is the future of the world. Like, that's, those are the politicians 40 years from now, those are the corporate CEOs 40 years from now, right? um that is probably the biggest influence on where the world goes in the long term is whatever the kids end up believing that's you know if you're an investor and you're trying to look at what what's the next technology going to be it's whatever the kids are gravitating towards now right mm-hmm. it's always going to be that way
0: well it's true and i think one problem here that we're seeing is it, we're continually creating group identities versus focusing on the inherent value and uniqueness of individuals right I mean, when people talk about gender identity and, you know, presenting one way or another or, you know, what your preferences are, it's like, well, really what we're talking about inherently is an individual's personality, right? I mean, that's, that's who they are.
3: Yeah, I mean, like that's what gives your life's meaning, your participation in a group or your individual contribution to the world? Say that again. What gives your life meaning, your participation in a group identity or your ability to contribute to the world? I mean, I, think, I it's, think it depends for both people. the conservatives, communitarian conservatives and the left are making the same error on this. Communitarians are saying, well, if we just had religious, you know, covens that everyone lived in, everything would be better because everyone would have meaning and everything would, and, and we would, we would rediscover God and all these good things would happen. I'm not sure that's true. Right. Because I don't, that says you as an individual are too dumb to know what ends your life should meet. And therefore we need a, Uh, a religious community to tell you and that's why we need conservative um communitarianism the progressives are saying the same thing here your individual your individual identity actually doesn't matter that much what matters is what group you belong to and the interest power politics of that group and that will give your life meaning and so you say look at the civil rights this gave all these people meaning to fight for something that was good and equal and, and great and you can join in that too in the civil rights issue of our time is, you know, LGBTQ plus issues. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, um, I think both are errors. I think both best conceived with virtue is collapsing down to the individual and the value of the individual to be able to say, no, this is authentically who I am. I, that's going to take risks to say that it's going to take, um, it's going to take courage to say that, but this is who I am. And, uh, and to live that out and then to find ways to contribute to your social order that, make the world a better place and therefore find meaning in that. Yeah. And, and I, when I describe contributing, what I mean is like how you serve other people in the marketplace, how you serve other people in your, in your family
0: life or in your charitable life or in the, the components of your life that give you fulfill, fulfillment. And one place we've gone astray in that pursuit is that so much of society is geared around narcissism of social media, of look at me, victim mentality of, Wanting, you know, of of whatever percentage of young people wanting to be YouTube influencers or or whatever, yeah, you know, like that. cultural, the cultural shift has shifted from how can I serve others to how can the world serve me. Yeah, and that is, I think, a one fundamental problem we're facing right now. Mm.
3: I think that, I think that's that, that's accurate. I think, and it's and it's broader than just LGBTQ. I, th- I think you
0: can make this oh, case absolutely. for fitness influencers definitely. who are definitely about the same. This is not growth. about gender identity. This is right. about a, a, a personal philosophy of an interaction and a relationship with the world and your community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Let's talk about polls here. I want to, I want to get to this, uh, some of these new numbers that have come out. Rasmussen put out some, some new polling data that suggests that something like 62% of Democrats would want to see Joe Biden, Joe Biden challenged by a, uh, another candidate if he were to run for president in 2024. Simultaneously, the same poll suggested that over 50% of Democrats somewhat support or strongly support RFK Jr.'s campaign, which is sort of contrary to what we talked about last week in that we thought he was going to face headwinds with with partisan Democrats over his strong anti-vax stances and things like that. And it seems like maybe the Kennedy brand is stronger than whatever the media has sort of tried to paint him as uh, so far anyways.
3: Well, I mean, to be fair, this is just on his name ID. All they They don't know anything about his stances or about his history. In fact, in fact, doesn't the question just say that he's an environmental lawyer or something like that? It says environmental lawyer, yes. Yeah, yeah. So just knowing that, obviously, you're going to get a lot better than if it said anti-vax for, sure. You know, for it would, sure it would have been a very different result, well i I'm think sure. this is
0: this is a, a little bit more of an unbiased approach right from a polling perspective oh, they sure. need they need to get some clean results yeah, versus yeah. the media which is going to put the most sensational clickbaity title up that they possibly mm-hmm. can right
3: yeah so but if you're asking the question like is there an avenue for another candidate to challenge joe biden this is actually very interesting right because 62 percent of democrats is that's for a incumbent president, like switching horses mainstream, which is the always the term that they use in presidential elections when a incumbent's running, typically is a very powerful message in this space. And I think, you know, Democrats could be there, right? I mean, especially in a wartime situation, right? The Democrats feel like they're in a war in Ukraine against Russia, right? That's the narrative that they've embraced as a party. It's surprising to me to see like in the middle of all that in the middle of everything else going on what they feel like they're under siege by, you know, fascists all over the country. They're like,
0: "Yeah, but we can definitely get a different leader." That's that's a pretty strong signal. Well, do we know is, is there polling data, at least reliable polling data that that uh takes the temperature of Democrats on the war in Ukraine right now? Oh, I don't can know. We, can we can we see if we can find that, Kyle? I'll take a look. Spicy. Because I don't I don't know, obviously. I don't have the information, but it, it seems intuitive that, like, from what I'm noticing, the attitude is shifting on this conflict in Ukraine. People are recognizing we have given them so much money, and and now with these new leaked documents, we're realizing, okay, maybe maybe we do actually have boots on the ground there, which is a lie that the administration has been telling us we haven't had boots on the ground for right. however many months now. We've been giving them more and more and more weapons. Now we're realizing maybe... Maybe Russia ha- hasn't had the casualty numbers that we think, and maybe Ukraine has had way more. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of question marks there, and I'm just curious, like if that's if that's shifting public sentiment towards this conflict. I guess maybe we'll, they've all been listening to this podcast, so now they know how to think about Ukraine. That's obviously, <laughs> yeah. If you see there are leaked documents of the analytics of this show that came out on, on a Discord server recently, and we've got a million. Uh, weekly listeners you guys a million might have been might have been manipulated documents (laughs) i doubt it i doubt
3: it it's just in paint it's just like written over (laughs) with the cursor (laughs) one zero 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 i'll I'll get working i'll get working on that right now (laughs) thank you
0: (laughs) you, tech support Uh, thank you tech support um yeah you know uh speaking of that um we have we have experienced pretty steady growth, and we appreciate everybody listening who's sharing with their friends and uh, you know sharing clips that we're putting on social media. If you haven't yet, uh, wherever you're listening to this, please do shoot us a thumbs up or a five star review or, or whatever you can. We we appreciate it every every little bit counts. Any luck on those uh, those polling numbers?
2: Not really. Nothing that's like Democrat specific.
0: Anything just general populace? Uh, well, that's not what I was looking for. Well,
1: <laughs> I think the polling has shown that the favorability for the war has, has declined, but Mm. I I mean, I'm not the most up to date on it. Well, I think that, I mean, I think that these leaked docs could be a huge catalyst
0: for a continued shift here. I mean,
3: assuming people actually connect what's actually happening. What are the interesting things that we said we're going to talk about this this week throughout the week? I was like, what's actually in these documents? So I try to look it out and it's so unclear. If you look at traditional media sources, you got to really go off the beaten path and even then you're not always sure about whether or not the source is looking at the supposed manipulated docs or the real docs. Right. And then I'm also asking like, wait, is there really a manipulated doc or is that just like some kind of counterintelligence effort to undermine the entire situation? Cause no one can differentiate which ones the manipulated docs and which one of the real ones. Well, I think
0: that's the really interesting part here is there's, there's been this shifting narrative. So for those that haven't, haven't heard about this story, these documents were leaked. Um, Apparently for months they were on a Discord server, a Minecraft Discord server of all things. Uh and and they were they were supposedly showing like, you know, different troop arrangements and different battle planning strategies and things related specifically to the war in Ukraine. They appeared to be on their face United States like Department of Defense documents. Uh and the, and they come out and actually finally hit the press after apparently months of being online just kind of circulating amongst these these like fringe gaming servers and once they were acknowledged, uh, it was, it was I, I believe, and I couldn't find an article. I want to admit this. I couldn't find an article to substantiate the claim that they were initially called probable Russian disinformation um, because as of looking for the link, it's now been shown that there's someone who's been you know uh, arrested for releasing these in the United States. Um, but that was, an, from what I remember, the initial narrative, and then it shifted to, well, they're real but they have they have no business in, in the public discourse, right, or in the public domain, said John Kirby, after they had already been covered extensively by the New York Times and by the Washington Post. And then it shifted to, well, they're real, but some of them have been altered, right? So they're, like, trying to figure out how to manage this, like, chaos of these documents that they never intended to be public. and it, and, and it does raise the question, is the altered document side of things? Is that, you know, the CIA coming in and trying to, like... Mess up some of the documents so that they have this plausible deniability that, oh, you know, you you don't know what's real or trying to obfuscate the truth here. It's really tough to say.
3: When they give you a sense of it, like it's either it's either somewhere like a one to two ratio Ukrainian deaths to Russian deaths to one to seven. Right. That's those are the best numbers I could find. Yep out of this. Now, what we've been told is that's not even close to what the what the numbers are. Even in the worst case scenario, the manipulated docs where it de-emphasized Russia is still a terrible picture yep. about how the war is going. So to be clear, that means for every Ukrainian, uh, every
0: Russian death, there are seven Ukrainian deaths right. in this war. Which previously it was said that the Russians had lost what somewhere in the ballpark of 100,000 troops to 70,000 Ukrainian troops, right? right? Which is a dramatic shift, if, yes. If these numbers are true, yeah.
3: So it's it's a really strange one because it would be like, okay, what are the real numbers? We know that for decades, the United States government lied to us about the casualties in Iraq, in, uh, in Vietnam. We know they lied in Iraq. We now know those things because of you know information re- releases and WikiLeaks and things like that. What's going on here? And there's even a step removed because it's not even our own military, right? It's just militaries we're supporting. How do we get to the truth of those numbers? And how do we Oh, it's insane in a republic that we can't trust our own government. Right. The whole point of this government was to be in the service of the people. Right. And so when they consciously said, well, we're lying to you for your own good. Right. Like they did with COVID, like they're probably doing now with this. It's exactly why we can't trust them. Right.
0: This is just the next, you know, notch in the in the tree, in the fence post of reasons we can't trust the federal government. (laughs) I just,
2: I just pulled up a video. I don't know if you guys remember when the WikiLeaks dropped, when uh, Chris Cuomo ran cover for them saying that it was illegal for citizens to look at the oh, contents yeah. of these things. Oh, it's really? a quick 15-second uh, yeah. video
3: let's for you it. guys.
2: But it just, this rang true for what you guys were saying here for me.
3: Also interesting is, remember, it's illegal to possess uh, these stolen documents. It's different for the media. So everything you learn about it's this, different you're learning the media. from us. And in full disclosure, let's take a look. It, what is in
0: there and what it means. Joining us now, CN. <laughs> wow. There's a claim. There's a claim. I'm gonna try not to
1: yell. Go off, king.
0: <laughs> the first amendment,
3: free of the press doesn't mean just because I got a press badge, I got special rights. That's not how it works. Okay? <laughs> the first amendment is combined with free speech for a reason. I'm sorry, I'm clipping. But good oh my god. Okay, so the absurdity. Okay. Of having an intelligence state that feels so comfortable lying to us is, is such a contradiction to the purpose and founding of the country, to the Constitution, and what we're supposed to be about. And, and these sorts of releases should be – is actually getting to, is some insight into what it would actually be a republic with this sort of military and intelligence apparatus. This is how the baseline should be. We should have the numbers. We should understand what the investments are. We should know where this money has been spent. But for some reason, the corporate press is over here running cover for this entire operation saying, oh, you don't need to know that stuff. That's not important. And you can't look at this and saying something that that terribly
0: unconstitutional. Yeah. Not even just running cover, but saying it's illegal for you to possess these. So don't even go look for yourself. (laughs) Don't go try to find out what's in there. It's insane. It's wild. Take a breath. Oh, man. Sorry for all of you. who.
3: (laughs) Sorry about your ears. (laughs) I tried to back off from the <laughs> mic but it was I
0: was so He's a passionate passionate oh, man. Oh man. Yeah, no, I mean you you're exactly right. And I think that people should be outraged by this because it is another example of the government just continuing to lie to us, continuing to treat the American people like infants who can't understand the gravity and the ramifications of what we're seeing or or if we knew. And I think this is probably even more the case. If we knew the truth, we would be outraged. And so <laughs> Here we are, outraged right. one way or another.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's worse than being treated like an infant. It's being treated as a, as a subject, as something to be, to be ruled over, to be controlled, to, you know, this is what you need to, you know, it's, it's like Plato's cave. Like, we, we control what you see and what you think. Even worse, being right. treated like an enemy. Because if we knew, like, we would do something about it and we
0: would be threatening to them almost, right? Oh,
1: yeah. politically, yeah.
3: They get your tax dollars. They get all the privilege that goes with those tax dollars. They get to take that money from you. And then they reserve the privilege to lie to you.
1: It's 2023. If, if you're still believing what's coming out of the corporate press and what's, you know, the, what your government is telling you, I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> you know, after, after this, this last three years, especially, I mean... It's true. And, and even worse yet, if, as if this
0: this could get any worse, uh, we're seeing now uh, headlines emerge after this leak that suggest that U.S. intel agencies may change how they monitor social media chat and chat rooms after missing these leaked U.S. documents for weeks. So not only are they lying to us about the contents of the documents, now they're going to be clamping down even more on the internet and, and on chat rooms and Elsewhere to try to prevent future leaks from happening. It's I mean, what's crazy here is that they're admitting they're surveilling you. <laughs> we're supposed to
3: be a country where you have the right to privacy. That's what the Fourth Amendment's there what for. What do you mean
0: admitting? We've known this <laughs> since the Patriot Act. <laughs> well
3: I know, but like for a long time they've always denied and said, well, we're actually we're we're You know, external threats, and that's actually our mission. And the CIA would never do that. We know that's that's a lie. But we know that in the FBI, they only have to have they have to have probable cause. We know that's a lie. And all these things all stack up, and then that's 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 when I start yelling. Right? Is where you get to the point where they're admitting, oh, we're going to monitor your disc your Minecraft Discord server in case someone posts this. Now you're not safe on Minecraft anymore. Like that. If there's any sacred
0: place, it should be like <laughs> <this>. <laughs> There's nothing sacred anymore. It's true. Nothing is sacred anymore. Well, and, and you know, this, this really does uh, kind of segue pretty nicely into the Assange video, if we want to go there, um, because if anyone has been persecuted for doing what journalists should do, which is releasing news that and documents that hold the government accountable for their actions. It's Julian Assange. who has been in Belmarsh prison in the UK for four years, uh, awaiting extradition to the United States. He, uh, the white house has just come under pressure surprisingly from like members of the squad, like the progressive, you know, cohort in the democratic party, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and, and those folks, uh, calling on Biden, the Biden administration to, uh, to rescind the extradition order to bring Assange to the United States for, for prosecution, for releasing uh, you know, classified documents, like a journalist should. We would uh, refer you to the Justice Department. All
3: right, I'm uh, anticipating that answer. Uh, what is your assessment, or what is the National Security Council's assessment of the, of the harm that was done by uh, the WikiLeaks leak in 2012? And that would inform any decision by the Justice Department. Uh,
0: I think you know, we if you go back and look at how the administration
2: responded in 2012, uh, and of course, president biden was then vice president at the
3: time uh we would uh, we would maintain that we that what what we said at the time what was said at the time that uh that those uh that those leaks those revelations in the public sphere were damaging to u.s national security all right so let me put this in context why this is about assange is because assange was in charge of wikileaks in 2012 wikileaks put out a leak well in fact they are the host of a service that allows people to leak information to them anonymously. That's what it is. Since that time, he gives this robust defense of the Wall Street Journal journalist who's been incarcerated in Russia, right? Yes. And then at the same time is maintaining the problems with just Julian Assange trying to get him extradited to the United States where he's been on house arrest effectively in an embassy for a very long time in jail for a very long time for the crime of hosting a website that is effectively journalism. So he defends journalism at one point and says, this is this guy's a journalist, not a criminal. And then in the next very next sentence, he's just like, well, but you see that back then we did. A, he gave a non-answer, completely right. unsensible answer. Right. Because it's a contradiction. Well, it is. Because you can't you can't be f- pro journalism and pro freedom at the same time where you're saying, yeah, but we should definitely lock this person
0: up because he embarrassed Hillary, Hillary Clinton that one time. <laughs> <laughs> Which, to be fair, he did. I what's what's with the significance of who is calling on the Biden administration to, you know, rescind this extradition order, for one? Why why is the, are the members of the squad doing this, and why now? Because they're not exactly like freedom fighters, from what I understand. Well, I
3: mean, I think the progressive... If you look at like democracy now, and like the progressive wing of the party that's still anti-war, and still there, they have a constituency of those people, right? Uh, the, the progressives of the ilk of Uh, Glenn Greenwald and folks like that that are and and Seymour Horsch is another one of those guys, right, who are still in that place of, hey, we need workers rights and we need, you know, to make sure that we have a robust self welfare safety net. And we want to be a pro-peace country, a country amongst many that encourages democracy and, you know, um, internally and externally peace with all. So I think they have a constituency that they're responding to and they need to placate. But why now? I'm not sure about, but I I, I suspect that that's the uh, underlying
0: political motivation. Well, I mean that would be great if people were putting pressure on them to demand such things Good because thing. absolutely, it's be before two uh, four years too late. But, I would hope you that, you know, that
3: they would put some pressure on to do an independent
0: investigation of the Nord Stream two pipeline. Absolutely. Well, I won't don't hold your breath on that. One. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the whole situation is very interesting, and we will definitely keep uh, keep checking in on it as it goes. Um, let's pivot to, let's pivot to some economic stuff. We don't, we don't, we don't tend to cover a lot of economics news on the podcast.
2: <laughs> Minus having a whole guest to talk about the banking crisis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Except for that.
3: And a few other times. I like, like t- 10 rants now about the federal reserve that we've done. I mean, come on guys. Well, yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So maybe a little bit, a little We bit. could
3: talk about it more. If
0: <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a lot of economic philosophy sure. and, and, monetary policy that we do get into but as far as like the current state of the economy I feel like we don't really go there Mm. too much Uh, but there are there are you know warning signs flashing regularly now that we're not in such a such a hot economic space I mean I believe technically last year we entered a recession right two consecutive quarters with negative GDP growth was previously for almost all recorded time of this sort of metric the technical definition of a recession. Until, of course, the Janet Yellen and the Biden administration said, "Well, that's not exactly what it means." and it's, no, we're not technically in a recession, but I think we really are. Um, the latest evidence pointing to that is uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, for one, you might remember on the podcast that we had with Brad, he talked about uh, vacancy rates in major metro areas being twenty percent or thereabouts, and how that's uh, tremendously high. And the problem there is as these landlords, these commercial Landlords have their uh, notes come due to refinance on these buildings that they own. Uh, If they have massive vacancies, that's going to result in the buildings being worth a lot less than they were when they got the loans originally. Plus, we've got interest rates that are much, much higher than they were when they initially financed them. So it might be a problem where they default and then that creates a cascade effect that, that has ramifications on the rest of the economy and us regular people, not just commercial landlords or bankers. And now we're seeing a report from Coldwell Banker, the real estate um, agency, reporting that San Francisco office space specifically is nearing 30% vacancy, which is incredibly high. When you consider that in the last quarter of 2019, uh, the vacancy rate was as low as it probably almost could be at 5.4%. So we've gone from 5.4% vacancy in the fourth quarter of 2019 to almost 30% in 2022. Uh, th- that's not a good thing. I mean, obviously it's indicative of, you know, the work from home movement, right? A lot of people have shifted their lifestyles to to that sort of realm, but that doesn't change the fact that this is probably the next major domino to fall in this financial crisis that we see unfolding kind of like steadily, but slowly in front of our
1: eyes here. Um, I think it's pretty interesting. Do you guys have any thoughts on it? Um, I mean, I, as far as are we in a recession or not? I, I think we we are, and I think you know, by and large, over the last couple of decades, the only thing that's you know made economists say otherwise is that we've had this fabricated bubble economy that has made the stock market go up and has allowed Americans to continue to to consume, and has, has produced in the eyes of a Keynesian, what is, you know, an ideal economy we're we're consuming and, and our, our ability to continue to consume has, has been strong throughout this whole time, but we're, we're not producing a whole lot of things and our real purchasing power of the dollar is going down and our, um, you know, real wages are, are going down year over year and, you know, our, the 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 real comparison to you know whether or not we're in a recession would is impossible to to actually look at because we want to look at well where would we be if we had a real free market that was allowed to you know to sustainably grow and produce and you know that 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 doesn't exist but we we have an economy that's that's kind of sitting on a on a, a on a precipice of, of falling off a cliff and you know, it's in the best interest of, of politicians and the media to pretend like it's not, but yeah, here we are. And I, I think a lot of people actually realize it. I don't know more and more every day.
3: Yeah. I do wonder uh, how much COVID plays a role here, right? I think, I think you're touching on something right like that, but I think that COVID was disastrous. The COVID response policies were disastrous for small businesses. And majority of those vacancies are probably small businesses that struggled through COVID and shut down either during or soon after because of lack of ability to satisfy customers or even find customers.
0: Yeah. Right. I don't know about uh, San Fran specifically. I know that the, the layoffs in the tech industry have had a pretty significant impact Mm -hmm. because a lot of those high rise towers are, are almost exclusively leased by the likes of, you know, Salesforce, for example, which has Mm -hmm. been laying off tens of thousands of employees and, you know, not to mention all the other tech tech companies. companies, Yeah. yeah. Amazon, Facebook. Yeah. You you can't name one without uh, it practically having had, you know, thousands of employees laid off recently.
3: What's important about that is that's, that's the result of the bubble, right? That's a result of that. We over, we malinvested. We made bets that weren't sound in part because we sent this giant signal in the economy that there was all this available savings that did not exist. Right. There's all this people who are delaying their consumption and we're going to, in the future, consume more when they are actually consuming right now because the way that's, that's how interest rates work, that's how this bubble is created that Henri's talking about is that there is a, there's a manipulation of this system that creates a bad signal, people react to that signal, and then we wind up with these disastrous scenarios uh, where people have made all these bad bets because they're listening
0: to the signal. Totally. Well, and speaking of bad signals, and I think this is also an effect of COVID as well. Um, An article just came out suggesting that a profit bust is coming for automakers. Um, Their inventories are ballooning uh, as a result of, and I think this is sort of what's called a bullwhip effect, uh, right? Where during COVID we, we had a shortage of, well, practically everything, consumer goods-wise, right, as logistics and supply chains were completely snarled. And so we had this lull in in inventories of, of new cars, right, driven by the chip shortage and other things. As automakers uh, worked to respond to that, as more chips were created, the inventories have, have come up. Along with that, though, interest rates have gone up so that consumers have are having a harder time getting financing for auto loans. And these auto dealers are finding their lots... Much, much more full than they ever were, and they're also finding that they have fewer customers than they ever did. So it's looking like we're, we're getting to a point where there might very well be some deep discounts offered on new cars if you can afford one. It looks like m- maybe a silver lining of, of some of the situation is, you know, with this sort of glut in inventory, there could be some, some good deals coming up. And obviously, if you're in the market for a commercial office building, there might be some excess inventory for that as well.
3: Prediction. We will have an auto bailout within the next three years. Auto bailout. Mm -hmm. Similar to 08. we We will bail them out again.
2: Well, and, and cars also experienced a whole, a whole bubble as well. Like I remember during the COVID times, at least here in the Valley, in this area, um, all of the, there was a shortage on car rentals that were going on, uh, for like Hertz enterprise, all that stuff. And all like the used car lots and everything all around the area, they were all having to, uh, to rent out their cars to the rental car companies because there was just a complete shortage of cars. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. One of the interesting uh, measurements back in 2000 back after 2008, it was like 2011, I want to say, was an economic study, Mises Institute actually, about Brazil and the increase in prices, the inflationary price of where you'd buy a car, and the car would be worth more a couple of years later, as like a signal of really terrible economics, right? Because as you're driving the car, you should be depreciating its value, right. And you're putting more miles on. You're putting more wear and tear. So, how a market normally would work would it would then depreciate the, the price of the car. But what we see and we saw that in 2020. We've seen some of that even now that you can actually resell your car back for a higher price over time. And that's that's a that's indicative of a very unhealthy economy because that means our price signal, the thing that allocates supply and demand and coordinates coordinates the spontaneously ordered process of the marketplace has been so damaged by the government's policies that it can no longer evaluate something as simple as is this car worth more three years ago or now after it's been uh, has a hundred
0: thousand miles on and if we were to allow the market to shift and and correct to those conditions with the higher cost of money right Mm -hmm. if fewer people are purchasing cars it's no longer inflated by the fact you can get a car loan for two and a half percent Mm -hmm. or whatever those prices come down, that's actually a, a correction, a, a uh, you know, towards a healthy market, right. right?
3: Yeah, and it would be that, but it's also, it, it's so complicated because we have not just the monetary and the finance part of it, we also have the regulatory part, which is the EPA just came out with a new electric, a new vehicle fuel standard saying that the emissions out of these vehicles, not that they're, not their miles per gallon, but just their emissions have to improve by 67% by the year 2032. So all new cars have to meet that standard by that time. That, Likely means a huge shift to EVs. That's going to have huge implications on car insurance and your car auto loans and all those other things that are going in. That are all going to be packed into that. So, if you currently have a combustion vehicle, what does the future of that look like? If everyone is now going to be retooled in auto mechanics to be able to only be able to repair as much as you can repair an electric vehicle, which they don't have the same kind of ability to repair, uh, from what I've told. Mm-hmm what is the future of all the support industries around that and how are they going to adjust and how that going to impact on the price, right. right? Your combustion car actually might become very, very valuable because it's the only thing that <laughs> it's actually reliable over the long run because right. everything else has been banned to be built new. Yeah. Well, it might be a great time to buy a combustion vehicle.
0: <laughs> I would say, I would say it probably is per, I mean, well, maybe coming up next six, 12 months when these deep discounts hit. Um, but I mean, I think it's interesting that the article talking about the the bubble in, um, the automotive industry does cite that, You know, automakers have had just fantastic profits over the last few years as they've been able to raise prices on cars because they don't have enough and people are clamoring for them. Well, those conditions are flipping. They're no longer going to have those record profits that they need to reinvest into these long-term visions like EVs. So we might not find ourselves meeting those goals just, you know, from a technical economic standpoint. I would imagine that hopefully at some point we realize that that's just bad policy and that trying to dictate... How many cars should be electric versus internal combustion is a terrible idea and will only result in inefficiency in the market rather than allowing people to decide, do I want an electric vehicle or do I want a gasoline or a diesel vehicle? Obviously, living in Montana, electric vehicles are not yet very practical. You know, they, they struggle in the cold, the batteries struggle in the cold. Uh, there's some incredible stories of, you know, like a car dying on the side of the road. And you can't open some of the passenger doors because the doors are all battery operated, and you can't open the, you know, the charging port door because it's battery operated, and it's like, ugh, you know, there there are wow. still tremendous problems with EVs. They're they're really cool technology, and for a while I really really did want a Tesla, but not they're not there yet. They're not there yet, and I, I don't I don't think that it's smart policy, and I I don't think that it, it's possible to mandate this sort of thing. Do you I mean do you think do you think it's possible to say by twenty thirty two in nine years, we're going to increase EV sales by
1: sixty percent. That just seems ridiculous. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I would prefer the government not attempt to do this. I suppose they they could look at you know replacing all the light bulbs uh, uh, with uh, with the, the fluorescence. Mm. Um, that sort of worked in, in their eyes, um, but well, but it didn't work. Yeah. The, the funny thing about that, we spent all this time and
3: money on replacing all these things with fluorescence, and then LEDs came out at like the same time. They made the wrong back on fluorescence and everyone went to LED. Yeah, right. That's that's the crazy thing about that story. And I remember that story because I, I was right. I was in college when that happened, and I remember writing about it because there was <laughs> all these government mandates, and well, we're going to switch it. We're going to save so much energy. And then this, at the same time, this other technology came along and completely wiped out fluorescence. They don't. They don't. They're, they're still around, but they're not. They're not nearly as competitive as LED. Yeah. In, in both energy savings and like people's enjoyment of it as a light source. It's crazy. Interesting. So, so yeah, will they do it? Uh, I mean, uh, I, th- I, I answer your question, not without a tremendous cost that's going to be born, that's going to be born mostly by the most poor and least well off. Because when the power's out, when you can't buy a car, when you can't get the things that you need, wealthy people find a way around it, right? They buy the electric vehicle if they need it. Right.
0: If you're low income, it's going to be a lot harder. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, we're just going to see more of the, the ironic situation that happened in California earlier this year. Or was it late last year where uh, Governor Newsom said, you know, we're going to uh, mandate electric cars only, you know, sold in California by this date. And then it was like the very next day. They're like, don't charge your electric vehicle or you're going to crash the power grid. Yeah. Like, okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Sounds and, and, good.
3: and at the same time, a judge of Montana just shut down a, 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 entire new, uh, gas power plant because of climate change, like climate change. I mean, it, it is a thing, right? It is in a, it may be an important thing, but how we deal with it needs to be balanced against other things. It, it, it's like this, it's the same thing with COVID. We get into these panics where it's like only one value exists. And that's not the real world. In the real world, we have a balance of values of various different trade-offs. There is no single solution that just solves all of our problems. That's how a child thinks. Adults think in terms of trade-offs and what, what best trade-off allows me to advance all my values across, across a wide range of things. Not just responding to the virus, also balancing civil liberties and also balancing people's ability to feed themselves and also other things in this climate thing. You have uh, both the EPA doing this with that, but the, also the judge saying there's only one thing that matters and that's climate change. And I'm sorry, poor people also still matter. And and, and this this approach to singular thinking that will solve a big problem is probably the wrong way to go about it. And, and, and to really look at that, look at Bjorn Lundberg and his work on Coolit and his books that actually look to balance these issues and say, we can still address this by addressing the root causes that do far better ROI per dollar spent Yes, and, that, and, and, and the fact that that guy is not the number one person in this space is absolutely
0: outrageous. Well, and there's also Michael Schellenberger, uh, Apocalypse right. Never mm. another great book. I mean, you look at his background. He's far from like a right wing shill or anything. He, he, like, right. he's like he part was part of like Greenpeace like part of the, part of the, the Obama administration. Yeah, he was a Soros funded uh, um, activist for a long, long time and, and he's like, look, climate change is a thing. It's a problem, but it's not the existential threat that everyone's making it out to be to capitalize on the crisis right. Right? which is what we're seeing. And right I, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say the the way you know that this this narrative is more about controlling individuals' decisions and telling us whether or not we can have a certain kind of car or a certain kind of light bulb and what kind of emissions we could have, and it's not about the actual environment and, and this existential crisis. I mean if the government was really concerned, or if, if the activists were really concerned, then their number one priority would be you know nuclear energy today. Hundred percent. Right. It, it, it would be let's let's form a NASA like institution and have you know fusion reactors in ten years and get all the smartest engineers together and you know just like the the moon mission you know set a date and and have a, an, a, an achievable you know specific goal that can be met and, and fund it. But they're not doing that. They're 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 telling us what we can eat and you know what we can drive and you know what kind of uh, you know, electricity we can use.
3: Well, that's, that's, yeah. the, that's the approach of abundance versus the approach of working towards uh, allocating scarce scarcity more effectively. right? And so the, the, the appropriate way to respond to a crisis to increase your ability to contribute to solving the problem. What the current philosophy is is that we are limited in that. Based upon things that have trade offs, right? So, what they would say is that nuclear has trade offs in terms of waste, in terms of cost to build, and all these things. Little did they know is that this same ideology is the one that created the EPA in the first place that put in the rules that make nuclear not as, as efficient as it otherwise would be or cost effective and makes the disposal of this waste almost impossible and that, and very, well, or, or very expensive even though that the nuclear waste and new fusion reactions are very small, very easy yeah. to take care of with very very small risk. In fact, they, the meltdown risk and things like that are super super low. The, uh, the the crazy thing about that is there's so much to be gained by a free market in that space, but those people are so opposed to free markets because they need to control everything to solve the problem that they'll never they are just unwilling to get there at least right now. Uh, and, and and I, I you know, I don't want to talk to their motivations as individuals. I'm sure that they really do think as individuals that, that the environment's under catastrophe and crisis and we're all going to die in 10 years. And they say that every three years, right? So the, uh, I'm sure that's actually what they think. But what, I want, what I'd suggest is that if, if they're to balance it against their own needs for social justice, that these policies are terrible policies. And the better, the better thing to do is rather than become an activist, become an entrepreneur, and create solutions in the space that people
0: actually want. Right. And I think you you raise a really interesting point there. I think that it's so difficult for people to understand what the trade-offs here are because the information around these issues is as fraught and as controlled as the industries themselves. You know, and, and so in order to get ourselves to a point where we can make informed decisions as consumers to put applied pressure onto the right parties to to push for abundance as opposed to scarcity mindset we need to have good information you know most people probably don't know that in order to make the the battery for one tesla car it requires 500,000 pounds of ore to be dug out of the earth tell me that's climate friendly tell me about the emissions that are required to pull half a million pounds of rock out of the planet
3: not to mention your coal fire plant that powers your your Tesla or the natural gas that powers your Tesla, or of course the additional that goes into the solar panel or exactly. the wind
0: farm that, that powers your Tesla. Exactly. We need, we need better information on this stuff. We need democratized information, which is, which is some things, some, some small aspect that we are probably here to serve. Hopefully is to bring some additional amount of information to people who wouldn't otherwise have it. Mm-hmm. And well, also it, some pithy. Opinions. Yeah.
3: You know, but that's, a, that's exactly the kind of trade off talk that I'm talking about. Right. So like if you say, Nuclear can't be done because it has, you know, environmental impact that it, with the waste, or coal can't be done because it has environmental impact with the CO two or with the, uh, with the mining process. Then apply that to wind and solar. Yeah, there is no solution that isn't that. Isn't that. Your only other solution is don't have energy, which is not a solution, right? Because what that means is your children die, people die. <laughs> right? that, yes. That's what that means. It means that uh, you have a baby in an incubator and they can't stay alive. And that's the situation that people exist right now on this planet, in Africa, in the in the Middle East, in in Middle Asia, or sorry, South Asia, that have real problems in electric stability that results in people's real death. Yes. And to just say, Well, we'll you know, I'm just I'm just gotta believe the right thing. I'm gonna believe the current thing. I'm gonna believe the thing that, that people say is in the Wind and Soul are the way to go without thinking about any of those trade offs. That's not an adult way to think. Right? You got to get to the place, and we got to encourage a culture of people saying there is no perfect solution. There's only trade offs. Thomas Sowell.
2: I mean, I'll counter you, Dave. These are adults thinking this way, though.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just mean your, your mindset has they, to be. They might be adults. physically
1: matured, but they are mentally still not. Well, adults. I mean, it's, what,
3: what I mean is like, I'm not trying to talk down to them, I'm not trying to insult anybody. What I'm trying to say is like, Anyone thinking about this and talking with somebody quickly finds himself in a situation like, well, but I think the trade-offs are worth it. Madeline Albright, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we think the cost is worth it. Right. We're we're in that stock. uh, Most people just are never challenged with a more diverse point of view. Uh, And so they're not engaged with the full range of it. And I think once you that feeling of, oh, my God, I might be wrong. Right, that is how adults think. Right, that's it's a children, a child who's going around saying, "No, I'm always right because I'm me." Right. So, it, as a guy with kids, the 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 natural propensity is like, "I believe a thing, and now that's the truth." Right, and rather than the the eventual step of like, "I live in a society where I'm actually challenged with my ideas," and that's the problem with the echo chamber and the mainstream, you know, problem that we have right now with media mm-hmm. uh, is that it just gives you a set narrative. That doesn't negotiate the trade offs, that isn't engaged with reality uh, of those trade offs. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, so, and before, before we leave the environmental issue, I just, uh, you know, I feel the, the urge to make the obligatory comment about Coast Therm once again. <laughs> yeah, you know, I want to popularize this idea so hard that it becomes a, a drinking game. So every time <laughs> I say Coast Therm, you can have a drink. Uh, oh, oh, oh you, got
3: a, you got a fizzy one. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> but. This it, over yeah, here. It's always a matter of property rights. This, you know, nuclear waste or. Oh, hold
0: on. Hold on. Hold on. I got to go. I got to go. Okay. Okay. Just want to make sure you're not missing <laughs> the hot gossip uh, about Coase Theorem of here. No,
3: no. I, I can hear him. Okay. Let me just.
0: So <laughs> Coast Theorem again. I need a drink. Okay. Hold on. How yeah.
1: do you, can, let's start, start over. Yeah. Coast Theorem. Yeah. How do you spell it? Coase. C O A S E. Coase. Yeah. Ronald Co-, 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 Co. Ronald. Ro- Ro- Ronald. I believe Ronald. I, uh, yeah, you know, look it up. Uh, if, if you're I'm it up right now, our okay. coast, our coast.
0: Okay. And coast theorem is what in the general the, sense,
1: coast theorem is if property rights are well defined and easily enforceable, uh, then as transaction costs go down, negative externalities go down. So, uh, you know, things like, uh, pollution, Police. crime, poverty, uh, you know, basically all all things that we wanna avoid, all third party external negative costs go to zero as transaction costs go to zero. So can, never can you, you know.
0: elaborate on transaction costs? Because I feel like that's a little bit of a nuanced point
1: there. Like no, just, what are you speaking to there specifically? So just economic costs. You know, so it, it used to be expensive, you know, cell phones used to not exist. Um, and it used to be very expensive to own the first cell phone the first cell phone was like a rotary phone in a briefcase and you could only use it in you know certain situations and you only had like a very limited number of people you could call over time uh, everybody gets one of these right and and they're fairly affordable um so you know if you let the market work then transaction costs. That is one of the benefits of a free, free market, free society is that the, the, the cost of doing things eventually over time always goes down, you know? Um, so like mail, for example, if I wanted to get a package to Washington
0: DC, I wanted to send the Biden administration that awesome Ron Paul revolution t shirt that you're wearing designed by our good friend, Adam Schwankel, who's called me twice during the recording of <laughs> this podcast. Uh, AdamsFalcon4.com. Before, before I would have had to put that package in the saddlebag of a dude on a horse and you would have to ride that shit across the country. Right. And now we have FedEx and UPS and USPS. Although we'll leave that one at the side.
1: Or you could, you could, <laughs> you could text him a picture of it. Fair. You know, you know like yeah. that. I mean,
0: so, so that, that's an example of transaction costs. It's much easier and cheaper to get something from point A to point B or to, right. to purchase things over time. Or just your cost of doing business. Perfect. Yeah, your ability to do business.
1: You know, but I mean, like uh, Murray Rothbard, like hypothesized, like eventually it'll get to the point where you know you just think of a Coca Cola and it's like already you know being poured into your mouth. Like, <laughs> I don't know. know that I would actually yeah. want that. That's that's not, <laughs> well, that's that's, that's, <laughs> the,
3: that's the end state of Neuralink. Yeah. <laughs>
1: just just you know. drowning
0: in Coca Cola
1: <laughs> at the mere thought of it. I mean, he used that example. You could think of a Zesty if you prefer. I think I think <laughs> that <he> will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so transaction costs go down over time. Um, so that that's allowing the market to function allows transaction costs to come down every time, whether or not transaction costs go down or not. The only thing that we can like today actually do something about is how we define and enforce property rights. So as long as property rights are well defined, easily enforceable, then that's the best way to get to the best possible outcome with things like the environment.
0: So just in case someone out there is thinking, okay, property rights, that's like the dude standing on his porch with a shotgun saying, "Don't come on my property." Like what are some other property rights that apply to everyone not just like a landowner per se?
1: Well, I mean, I would I would think about it, you know, like this, like who owns the road outside? You know, it's a it's a publicly owned road. What does that mean? Does that mean the the government owns it? Does it mean you own it? Does it mean we all own it collectively. Who's responsible for fixing it if something happens? Who's who's responsible for building a new road? You know, these are nebulous property rights. There are many privately owned roads. And with a privately owned road, like my wife is an engineer and she was just telling me it's always a pain in the ass to deal with the city. She she mostly deals with things like uh uh, you know, drainage and, and parking lots and things like that. It's a pain in the ass to deal with the city. And she had just had a project that dealt with a, had a privately owned road and something that would normally take weeks or months to get approval through the city was dealt with in a day, wow. you know, it, it, and that's the difference between, you know, a well-defined, easily enforceable property right versus, you know, a nebulous well, and that's
0: also an example of a transaction cost. Time is a cost, right? If you can't get something done quickly, you've got staff, you've got resources sitting idle that could otherwise be at work, right? So getting it done in a day is cheaper than getting it done in a month, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, time is a cost. Yeah,
3: but property yeah. isn't just like things on the ground, too. Property is the microphone and the computer and all the other things. So any, that's also
1: property. Yeah. I think um, any physical, tangible thing is, is, a, is a type of property. Right. It, that's made with human labor. Yeah, or, so or, but even even like you and I, you know, in in uh, in a Messesian worldview, would be property. Like we own ourselves, we own our bodies, we we own our actions. Um, so
0: even if you don't own a house, you are in fact a property owner of yourself. Yeah. Yes. Nice. That's why no one can own you.
1: Right. This is this is this is why you know slavery is wrong because you cannot disassociate from your body. You cannot unown yourself. It's, you can't be owned by somebody else. Unless Even it's in the a, state,
0: unless it's in an, an internet sense where like I'm owning you,
1: yeah. <laughs> and, uh, or if it's conscription, you can be, then it's okay. No, that, that's technically pwned. You can be, oh. you can be pwned on fair, there. Fair point.
3: <laughs> <laughs> unless fair it's point. conscription, and then it's okay, right? Well, unless I mean, if you're, if you're selling, if you're selling your, conscription waiver. is when the government says, uh, oh, conscription. Yeah,
0: conscription. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, what which I mean. you're being facetious, right? Yeah. Yes. yeah no, <laughs> I was about to have to gasp.
2: We, we had the Liberty Portal podcast endorse conscription.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Mandatory.
3: That would bring us together as a country and give us all meaning and purpose if we all served in the military for a little while. Real people believe that.
1: So, yeah. yeah. I'm going to bring up coast theorem as often as I can until everybody in America <laughs> understands that coast theorem is a thing and it's legitimate and it's a, it's a household term. We'll do a quarterly coast <laughs> theorem talk. About that? Every, day. Coast Every day, theorem <laughs> Every all the time. time. theorem drinking game.
2: <laughs> you, managed, okay. you managed to bring up the roads through it. Like we hit, all, we <laughs> no, we're yeah. hitting the libertarian talking. No, points, all, right? all the
0: things. Who will Not build the, the roads? roads. Uh, let's let's wrap this, monkey. We've been we've been blathering for a while. Uh, we've got we've got uh, some interesting stuff here. We, we talked about a little bit about parenting and and childhood mentality before, and so I think that's somewhat of a segue into this last piece that you brought to us on about peaceful parenting. What is that?
1: I mean, peaceful parenting is essentially the application of the non-aggression principle in parenting. So, you know, to boil it down, I mean, you should reason with your children. You should never yell at or hit your children. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about it as kind of a white pilling, you know, moment for me personally over the last couple of weeks is you know, I've seen it come up in my in my news and feed sources. So, uh, Mike Sternberg, who we talked about earlier, wrote an awesome uh, Substack where he was explaining why uh, spanking is immoral and ineffective, and spreading that to all of his followers is is in my my view a big deal um, because there is a lot there are a lot of people who especially. In the conservative Christian right, you know, think of this idea of spare the rod, spoil the child means that you're supposed to be strict and stern and, and use physical uh, punishment to properly raise a child. And, um, you know, ultimately, not only is that an, an inaccurate biblical interpretation, um, it is, it's an immoral and ineffective way to raise a child. And, and it's probably one of the reasons why, you know, children raised in a conservative household, you know, might rebel and, and want to... Become communists. You know, yeah, want to <laughs> become communists like, like Sarnovich would, would rail against. So, yeah, it's, so, it, it's also one of these things where, you know, we as libertarians can, can rightly, um, you know, be critical of the Fed what the hell can we do to, to stop the Fed from doing whatever the hell they want to do? I mean, we can vote for a better president who might nominate a new Fed chair. Or, I mean, like, you know, the pipe dream of, of having the Ron Paul president who's actually going to end the Fed is, it's a pipe dream. And, you know, more, more likely than not, we're just kind of reserved to... Wait for this thing to inevitably collapse on itself and suffer the consequences. But we probably, you know, those of us who have children or we know people who have children, we probably we have way more ability to to raise to choose how we raise our children. Or if you know somebody who is constantly yelling at or hitting their children, we have way more ability to reach out to that person and, and possibly affect that child's life. And you know influence our future generations and how they grow up and, and their ability to not be traumatized and to to know how to reason and to be you know peaceful cooperative parts of society so to see Cernovich talk about it was um, something I think deserves a lot of kudos and um, you know it, it also came up uh, through Jack V. Lloyd who's a um, he's a, he's an artist, comic book, uh, artist and, uh, a, a very good Austrian influenced, uh, type of guy. And uh, he was, he was talking about it on his Twitter feed as well. And I, I think, you know, there needs to be more encouragement and, and acknowledgement of this sort of thing. Um, it should be as much as the fed gets talked about peaceful parenting should be talked about. So, for sure. Yeah, uh, this is interesting.
0: Kyle's pulled up a tweet from Cernovich and he lays it out in a really interesting way. He says, "Imagine your boss brought out a belt or paddle to discipline employees. Would be unthinkable." I think that's what he meant to say. So he said would he unthinkable, would be unthinkable. Yet parents will hit their own children. This is weak-minded. Means you can't control your own anger. Don't spank kids. It's pathetic. This is still an ongoing debate. Well, that's interesting. What what do we say to the people who are hearing this, going, "Well, I was spanked as a kid, and I turned out fine."
1: Well, I mean, so the the literature on on this compares um, spanking uh, to smoking cigarettes. Hmm. Not everybody who smokes cigarettes gets lung cancer, but most people who get lung cancer smoke cigarettes. So, just because you were spanked and you turned out fine is not proof that spanking was was good for you and you know you you know somebody who goes through trauma might learn something positive from from their trauma but it you know like the the guy who was like trapped between between the rock and had to cut off his arm uh, I forget they like they like made a movie about this guy yeah, yeah for sure he wrote a book it like turned into a career for him, right? Doesn't mean that we should recommend, you know, getting cut between rocks and like chopping off our own arm. <laughs> fair point. You fair know? point. So, I mean, yeah, don't hit your kids. <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> Pretty the, simple. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That's I do fair. think
3: there, there's a, that one of the um, peaceful parenting advocates heard, that I first heard that from Stefan Molyneux. One of his interesting arguments that I, I I think is interesting and similar to Mike Cernovich is just like if you if you one of the things you're fundamentally teaching as you teach a child to hit or yell or use aggression or to get their way, is that as you do that to the kid, you're teaching them that that's how they should do it. So then when they're treating their little sibling or someone that they have more power over they exercise that power and he kind of blows it up to you like, well, that maybe this is a cause of statism fundamentally. Absolutely. Right. That, that the, well, there might be some people who choose other than me if we had a free society and I can't let that happen. So I need force. And what's even better is if I don't have to do it myself, I could just elect someone to do it for me. So that fundamental, like deep down underlying value of in order to get social harmony, in order to get good things, what we need is someone with the Billy club or someone with the paddle to do the work. And that's probably not true. It's probably true that you do need force to keep bad people from doing bad things when they aggress against someone else. The only just use of force is defensive. But to in order to comply, to create positive action, to actually do things, not, not to avoid doing something bad, but in order to do things, you have to, you know, force people using aggression. That is a that is an underlying social evil. And one of the points of peaceful parenting is to say in order to address that, we're going to advocate for peaceful parenting and push that. That's a great way for everyday people to contribute to a freer and open, more open society is by using the minimum effective force to make sure your kids do the things that keep themselves safe and contribute to themselves and a peaceful family. Um, You can't always reason with a kid. You can't always reason with a three year old. You can't always reason with an eight year old. But what you can do is use the minimum effective force, which is almost 99.9% of the time means, you know, caring for them and actually listening to them and reasoning with dialogue with them. There is an exceptional amount of time where you're like, hey, don't cross the road right then. you got to hold them back. Hey, you know, if, if you do that, there's going to be consequences. You're going to go to your room. You're going to have, there's going to be, there's going to be situations where you're going to take things away because you actually own the property and own the things. And that works most of the time in my experience. Uh, Once they get to the age of reason and they can't reason. Um, Additionally, that when it comes to encouraging reason, one of the things I think a lot of parents do is rather than engage in dialogue with their kids, once they get to the age of that, you know, seven, eight, nine, and they can actually start to reason You're you you, you, rather than saying, why do you believe that? You know, it's so funny. I'll I'll talk to my son and I'll be like, why do you believe that? He'll have 10 reasons, right? I talked to one of his friends, but why, why do you believe that? Or why do you think that? they'll look at me with the biggest deer in their headlights because like, no adult's ever asked them that before. And it's, it's always a strange thing. I mean, my son does always have 10 reasons, but often oftentimes he's not surprised by the question. Um, I, think, I think sometimes we treat kids uh, as uh, far later than we should as non-reasoning animals. Uh, and, and they're not. They're, they're, they're very early can begin to understand trade. Uh, rather than saying, eat your food, or I'm going to spank you. Saying, hey, would you like this? Would you like some dessert? Eat your food. And you're like, well, that's what parents will say oftentimes. And speaking as a parent is uh, that's um, what do they call it? Uh, Where you're paying someone off. What's, what's bribery? It? Bribery. That's bribery. And I was like, no, no, that's trade. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I can't explain to you right now why you should eat vegetables. Right. You're too little <laughs> to understand what a vitamin is. But you do know that you'll like ice cream better than you do your 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 broccoli. So eat your broccoli, get some ice cream. If you don't eat broccoli, don't get ice cream. That's simple. And just trade, consequence, trade-offs, those sorts of things can be taught from a very early age uh, in a way that um, oftentimes a parent is in the place of society for the kid. Like, you're modeling the rules of society to your kid as they're growing up. That's how you raise someone, right? You, mm. uh, Anna Arendt had a great quote. "Is like, there are barbarians always at the gates of civilization. We call them children. <laughs> right? And that, that yeah. idea is just that you're always in a place where you're you're raising the next generation uh, with a philosophy and ideology, but oftentimes that's really below the surface. And is what are the rules of the home? What are the rules of how do you get your way in your household? And if you want a more free and just society, raise your kids well.
2: I'll actually throw in there too of Stefan Stefan Molyneux, his concept around peaceful parenting, parenting, and his universal universal, universal preferable, preferable behavior or preferable behavior. universally
1: preferable behavior. Yeah.
2: Uh, back when I was 18, 19, he was the big driver that brought me into thinking about libertarianism was these concepts that he was talking about. Um, I was kind of a Nietzschean kid that was studying Nietzsche and I found him a video of him talking about that. And this was, this was my kind of gateway into the libertarianism ethos. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's kind of bringing this thing full circle. We're talking about uh, Cernovich and everything. I think that it was an absolute betrayal that libertarians threw him, completely threw him away and discarded him when he got unpersoned yeah. back in 2016, 2017. Cause there are a lot of real nuggets there that he had things like what Henri brought up here with peaceful parenting. And it's kind of a shame that I think libertarians kind of just like abandoned that.
0: Hmm. Right. He yeah. was, yeah. Among some of the first to be really, really canceled.
1: Yeah. And um, I mean, he's, he's sort of, uh, still canceled. I mean, he is actually, his account was, was just unsuspended on Twitter and he's not, he's not going back. Um, I mean, he's still, he's still doing work. He actually just, uh, uh, announced that he's going to write a peaceful parenting book. Um, and I, and I think, you know, for, for decades after, after we're all gone there, he's got two ideas that are going to last the test of time and UPB universally preferable behavior And peaceful parenting are those two ideas, and you know you can if you if you go look up his Wikipedia page, you'll be mortified. Just don't believe it. It's it's the typical lies that that people spread. Um, But regardless of whether or not any of those rumors or allegations are true, UPB and peaceful parenting are are powerful, important ideas that everybody in in the liberty community needs to be familiar with.
3: Right. And, and my minimum effective force, that's Jordan Peterson. Uh, do the things that model civilization to your kids, that's Jordan Peterson. Like the, and and, and Stefan Molyneux was talking about that years and years and years beforehand. Uh, and I, th- I, think, I think those are integratable ideas with most people's ability to just conceptualize, how do I want to raise my kids when I want to have
0: them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I trust that when that book comes out, it'll be available on libertyportal.com.
1: I think it'll be, it'll be free, actually. Oh. So, cool. cool. well then um, it'll
0: definitely be available on yeah. readyportal.com. And uh yeah, I mean, we should definitely dive a little further into universally preferable behavior uh in yes. a future episode. Uh this one however is uh pushing an hour and 45 minutes. I think it's our longest it's episode today. <laughs> so, if you're still listening, congratulations. You're a nerd. <laughs> and we really appreciate you. Um if uh if you've gotten any value from this Definitely do share with your friends. Leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, Like, subscribe on YouTube. Any final thoughts here before we sign off, boys? Mm. Say don't hit your kids. I knew that's what you were going (laughs) to (laughs) say. Don't hit your kids. Ever. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, our time has run up, but uh, we appreciate you for watching. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.